Well, good morning again, everybody. Glad that you're able to be here. Just don't don't look over outside. It's not looking good. But it's good in here, so that's always nice. I hope you've had a enjoyable week. Um, it's truly a wonderful day that we come together to celebrate today. We celebrate the empty tomb and the promises of the risen Savior, the promises that God has made from the foundations of the earth. You know, you think about that phrasing of why we come here today, and you know, as believers, I don't think it should be different than any other day in terms of celebrating the empty tomb, celebrating that Jesus is risen, celebrating that we are saved, celebrating God for who he is. It's just a little bit more special today as we remember those events in a little bit more detail. You know, we should have a life that's filled with joy, that's filled with praise because our Savior lives, because of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's such a day on our church calendar that is filled with the basis of our faith. You know, Paul says, if Christ is not resurrected, you are still in your sins and your faith is futile. The importance of the resurrection, paying that price in full of our sins, cannot be overlooked. This past week of the Holy Week season is one where we experience highs and lows. We experience the low of the grave and the high of the empty tomb. You reflect on the gruesome death that Jesus faced and the pure joy and bliss that you experience of life that comes from the resurrection. It is a wonderful time indeed. There was a British minister by the name of W.E. Sangster. He began to lose his voice and his mobility in the mid-1950s. He had a disease that caused progressive muscular atrophy. He recognized that his end was getting near, so he threw himself into prayer and writing. And one day he cried out to the Lord, let me, let me continue to suffer on a little bit more. Let me stay in this struggle, Lord. I may not still be a general, but give me a regiment to lead. Eventually his voice failed completely and his legs became useless. And on a Easter morning, a couple weeks before he died, he grabbed a pen and paper and he wrote a letter to his daughter. As he reflected on his time, he said, It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. So today we come before the Father with great praise. Shouting the name of Jesus and the fact that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Today we're going to be in two areas of scripture. We're going to read through Matthew 28, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And we'll break that up into a couple of sections. As you're going there, I'm going to open us up in prayer as well. Father, I thank you for the joy that you have given us through your spirit, through understanding the salvation that comes through your son. I praise you for the joy that we have to be able to come together to worship you. And as we go to your word, Lord, 
Fill us with your peace, with your joy, with your love, seeing your grace anew. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'm going to start, I'm going to read the first 10 verses as we go through this chapter today. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So we'll pause there within this section. And within this section, what I want us to see is the plain and simple truth of God. It is all over this portion. You know, last week during Palm Sunday, um, I mentioned how each of these holiday types of feasts, you go over the same passages. We're very familiar with the stories. We know what's going on. We know what the Bible says. You know, and this week is no different as we go through Matthew 28. You know, when we see this passage, we can see the truth within it. We can see the consistency. We see how the women are going to the tomb early in the morning to finish the preparation work that they started before the Sabbath. Even though they went through this difficult Passover time, they witnessed the crucifixion, they're still adamant about fulfilling their duties. They're still adamant about going and handling Jesus' body well. And behold, an angel of the Lord comes down to roll away the stone. Throughout Scripture, God consistently sends messengers of truth to his people. Here he sends an angel to these ladies to inform them of what has happened. You know, he sends angels, he sends prophets, priests, he sent his son, gives his word, all filled with his truth. With the appearance of this angel, you have a couple of different reactions. I like the Roman soldiers who just kind of fall down like dead men. I mean, these are probably battle-tested men that have seen a lot of things, seen a lot of gruesome things, seen war, but they've never seen anything like this. They haven't seen an angel come down tied with the event of an earthquake. It would tell them something is definitely going on that is beyond their comprehension. And the thought that I had this week was, would this event be beyond our comprehension? What would we think if something miraculous like this happened in front of us? The angel, however, doesn't even address the guards. He's got a mission. He merely speaks to the women, saying, do not be afraid. And listen to the truth that he says. I know that you seek Jesus, 
who was crucified. So we have a confirmation here. Jesus was crucified. Past tense. It was a real event. There are many witnesses to his death. It wasn't a magic trick. It wasn't a sleight of hand. Jesus truly died. The Son of God killed brutally, hung on a cross, humiliated, mocked, shamed. Jesus was crucified. Past tense. And as I was reading the verse this time around, it kind of struck me. You know, in the last couple of years, I, in my own personal study I've shared with you guys, I've emphasized a little bit more in language. I've looked at how the language flows. And I've emphasized the word but, how it's important where you place your butts, how it shows a good contrast within what God is trying to do. Notice, there's no contrast here. It's matter of fact. Jesus was crucified. He is not here. Simple. Truth. And it just struck me this time around. The grave is empty. Then you have the word for. It's a different purpose word than but. It gives meaning. It gives purpose. For he has risen or he has been raised. Passive tense. As he said. I love that little phrase. Those three words filled with such hope and truth. As he said. Jesus had taught he had stressed, he had warned, he had prepared, he had did whatever he could to inform his disciples of what would happen, that he was going to die. But three days later, he would rebuild the temple. Jesus said it, now it's come to pass. It is truth. And these women get to be eyewitnesses to this historic event. And then we see the angel kind of encouraging the ladies here. Come, see the place where he lay. Come see for yourselves, as if there might be a little bit of hesitation, a little bit of doubt. And he tells them, you're going to see Jesus again in Galilee. And without knowing fully what's going on, they run to the disciples with fear and joy. What an attitude to have as you go through your life. Fear of the Lord, fear because you don't know everything that's going on. You're not in control of everything the way that we like to be. And just joy. Joy at the promise that they're going to see Jesus again in Galilee. Joy that he is risen. They have that hope in God and his promises. They have that hope in the truth. And that hope becomes, comes from his life. And then Jesus appears to them. Notice what they do. They take hold of his feet and worship him. What does that tell you? You know, as you dig deeper into the text, into the meaning, so many times we read over these passages, we could just read past it. They take hold of his feet. He's not a ghost. He's real. Other gospels share how Jesus eats with the disciples. The resurrection is real. And they grab at his feet you know, feet were and are in most places still the dirtiest part of the body. To grab at his feet would be such an act of humility. And I envision a similar faith to the faith of the hemorrhaging woman. 
who, who, who thinks to herself, if only I can touch the hem of his cloak, then I would be healed. If only I could just grab the feet of Jesus. And then you tie that to how Jesus says, come lay your burdens at my feet at the cross. Come lay your shame, come lay your guilt. And here they are worshiping as they are grabbing at his feet. They have an encounter with Jesus. And he confirms what the angels said about seeing the disciples in Galilee. They will see Jesus again. You know, this section is full of the truth of God. And it confirms prophecies. And it sets up future promises in a very strong way. Within the account of the resurrection, we have to see the truth of God on display. He is consistent. He is faithful. He does what he says that he will do. Or what he will do. How then will we respond to the truth of God? The second thing that we want to see about the resurrection today is humanity's responses within this next section. When you think of responses, it really boils down to two responses, belief and unbelief. But we're going to go over three different variations of that today. Let's continue reading in our passage seven, or 11 through 17. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. We'll pause there. So we see a few different reactions going on here. Within this section, we see people who believe and worship. We see people who suppress the truth and reject the truth. And we see people who doubt. Now, would you say in your own life that you've experienced all three of these stances? I think if we think of our salvation time, our moments of salvation, before our salvation, maybe you can look back and see how you suppressed the truth. Then maybe you had some maybe doubts and things like that, and then belief and worship. But what about in your walk? Do you think that you experience these three attitudes? I think that we can look to various areas of our faith as we read scripture, as we hear different theological claims and beliefs, and we can show doubt, rejection, or belief. Let's walk through these a little bit closer. And what I find interesting within the Jewish leaders, I believe that they fully and absolutely believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Think of the lengths that they go to. They placed guards at the tomb because of what Jesus said about raising the temple in three days. That's at the end of chapter 27. They're preparing in advance for this resurrection. But now they are suppressing the truth because it would go against their positions of power. It would go against what they have built up to be true in Jerusalem. They're believing the event happened, but rejecting the meaning and purpose behind Jesus. They're rejecting the Christ rejecting truth. Similar to Adam and Eve, they're trying to cover their shame. 
hide from God, creating lies and stories, pushing blame onto the disciples, trying to do their best to hide from the Father, trying to suppress the truth that is God, that is Jesus. It's how the Bible describes those who will reject the faith in Romans 1, those who suppress the truth. And the Bible says that those people are without excuse because they know the truth and they refuse to believe it. The guards also know the truth, but they take the money. They take part in this suppression, knowing that they would be killed if the truth got out. They go out and they confuse the Jews. And Matthew says that confusion still exists among the Jews even to the day of his writing this gospel. Now, as interesting as the Jewish leaders are, I think the disciples are just as interesting or more in their response. It says some worshipped and some doubted. Or some believed and worshipped and some doubted. Now, I personally believe that when Jesus says, go tell my brothers in verse 10 that he is talking about the larger group of disciples, not just the 11. So when it says the they in verse 17, it would be the larger group of disciples. Um, I don't think it's the 11 that are being talked about of some believed and some doubted. Now, yes, we have Thomas who doubted. That's known. But it also says once they have seen Jesus, some believed, some doubted. Thomas doubted because he did not see Jesus. So here, I think that it's talking about all of the disciples. But there's some ambiguity behind this term and behind this scene. I mean, how do we understand doubt? Do we tie it to salvation? Do we tie it to rejection of the truth? This term is used only one other time in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew 14, 31. There it says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? This, of course, is in the context of Peter walking on water. Jesus using this term. So this term doesn't necessarily mean disbelief, like rejecting the truth, but more so hesitation. You know, it's still difficult to understand what's meant exactly by the term. We don't get the end of the story. And when you compare it to the black and white of belief and unbelief, it gets difficult to understand. So we need to be careful how much importance we tie to this term, especially when we're linking it to moments of salvation. Thinking of our own lives, or is there anything that we've ever doubted within the faith? Are there any times or seasons where we doubt the truth of God, where we doubt what's going on in our life? How do we wrestle through that? And again, we don't see the end of the story to what happens to these that hesitated in their faith. We can see how people could be hesitant to move from fear and unbelief to faith and joy when the matters are confusing. This hesitation is listed in other Gospels as well, alongside of instant belief of some. The hesitancy is apparent throughout all of the Gospels, not just around the resurrection. You look at the times of Jesus' ministry and how many times he calls the disciples out for having little faith. When will you believe? When will you understand? Little ones. So what this does is it shows that the resurrection didn't immediately change those who had hesitations or who were little in the faith. 
into spiritual giants that were going to be leading the church. There was hesitation among those who followed Jesus. But as you look back through his years of ministry, you see that consistency even among the 11 at times. We simply need to admit that there are times where we could be hesitant and don't fully believe everything that's being thrown at us. Continuing to wrestle with the truth. Seeking that out in our lives. Now the last stance that's given in this section is those that see Jesus, Jesus and believe and worship him. They know who he is. They have an understanding that I think is brought to their minds by the Spirit. You know, with Matthew, I think it's kind of a presupposition as he's writing this that a Pentecost moment is going to be happening, that the Spirit's influence in these people's lives is real because it just kind of ends and he gives the Great Commission in the next section. But, you know, when we think about how these people see Jesus and they just believe, I think that's where we all want to be. We read the Bible, and yep, that's what the Bible says. I believe it. And then we hear other opinions. We hear other voices. We get other things come in. And it begins to confuse us. We begin to doubt. We begin to question. You know, we think about these stances, and I think at different stages in our life and our faith, through different topics, through different doctrines, we move between belief, worship, hesitation, and even suppressing the truth. I think that hard one, or that last one, is the hardest for us to swallow sometimes. Where maybe we're elevating something that we really want to be true, but maybe it's not biblical. But we believe that it is. I think that we need to admit those times to understand that sometimes we get in our own way in our faith. And we're not truly believing what God has written. Daily we have to remind ourselves as believers that it's only because of the grace of God and that our hope is only in the death and resurrection of Jesus that we are saved. It's not based on what church you go to. It's not based on what system you're believing in. It's only based on the blood of Christ. The, the sacrifice that Jesus makes in his blood pays the sin debt that we would be responsible for. Sin requires death. That debt is owed because we have all sinned. We have all fallen short. And our transgressions are against a holy God. But Jesus paid it all. And the Bible says that if you only believe in Jesus, you will be saved. You will have eternal life. Now, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, let's unpack that a little bit. It means that you are believing in Jesus' death as paying the price for your sins. We all have a sin debt that is owed to God. God who is holy and will judge this world. In his perfect plan, he sent his son to be our savior, to die for our sins. And the gospel message calls us to believe in that sacrifice. And as we're believing in him, we worship him. We bow down, grabbing a hold of his feet in humility and praise. Our Lord and savior who is all in all. Our, our Lord and Savior, who is everywhere, right? Sunday school question, Jesus is everywhere, right? False. I mean, we celebrate today that he's not in the tomb. Makes you think a little bit, doesn't it? But that's the reason why we come today. We are saved because of what he has done. The victory over the tomb. 
and it causes us to move into the Great Commission. Let's read verses 18 through 20 quick. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the I was with you always to the end of the age. So this is a passage known as the Great Commission. It is something that I take very personally in my life. I try to push this in a lot of my messages to spur us on as believers to understand the commands that we have been given, the importance of going out to disciple others. Um, you know, when I, when I think of this, I oftentimes think of the life and story of Paul. And I want to share a little bit of his writings today to highlight what we've read in Matthew 28, to see his life with all of these positions that we've talked about. So turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 12 through 15 to start. And this is Paul writing to Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So as I think of the Great Commission and I think of what Paul is doing for Timothy as he is discipling Timothy, I realize how Paul too was discipled at one point. And as a pastor, a vision that I have is, or a ministry vision, is to be able to make disciples who then go out and make disciples. That is the goal that I have with, with teens. That's the goal I have with all of you to encourage you, to build you up so that you can go out and make disciples. Not just make converts, but make people who follow Jesus who then go out and do the Great Commission as well. You know, and when we look at what Paul is telling to, to Timothy here, He's starting out with this confidence that he has in Christ. But it wasn't always that way. Paul suppressed the truth. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of the church, a vile opponent of God. Remember in Philippians how he says he is the Hebrew of Hebrews when it came to the law. Yet he is insolent to God. Paul is not following the truth. He is not following God, even though he thought that he was, as the Hebrew of Hebrews, as the, the greatest Benjamite. You know, you think about his life. He thought of his persecution of the church as doing God's will. It's what God would want, thinking that the church was blaspheming God. But it wasn't until Christ came, until the truth came to him through Jesus, 
that he understood that everything before in his life he now counts as rubbish, as human waste, as compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And it was by grace that he put his faith in Jesus and he understood the absolute truth. And he shares it with us, with us as he shares it with Timothy. That Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Just pause with that verse. Reflect on that today. The purpose of Jesus' coming is to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You know, for those of us who are believers, who believe that Jesus died for our sins, can we find a better passage that speaks about what Jesus came to do? Our circumstances before Christ and after. I challenge you to find a better passage. I mean, I know Scripture is full of passages like this, very similar in wording. And I challenge you because I want you to dive into the Word to find those verses and bring them back to me over the next few weeks. Because as you read those passages, you're going to see the consistency between the writers of the New Testament, the consistency of God working in the early church, the consistency of discipleship and what they were teaching the church. It will bolster your faith. You're going to see the reasons why you believe, why your hope is in Christ. Let's continue reading in that section, verses 16 and 17. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. You know, this is in his opening to his letter to Timothy. Normally this is how he would end a letter. But he has so much love, so much gratitude for God that he's opening with this form of praise. With his, he's opening with this form of discipleship and looking at the gospel message. Paul shares the reasons why he received mercy. It was to be a testimony to others about the grace and the love of God. That God is true to his promise of eternal life. And that promise is found only in his son. That through the word and actions of Paul, Christ would be displayed to all those that were around him. As he is going, he would make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all of the commands that Jesus has given until the end of the age, until Jesus comes back. Today we come and we celebrate the empty tomb. We shout praises to the King. We have our, our moment of worship and celebration, but now we are called to go. We are called to go make disciples. We are called to go be witnesses for Jesus, to bring him honor and glory, testifying to the cross, 
testifying to the empty tomb, that the sin debt has been paid for just as the word of God proclaims. That is what we are to do with our lives. That is the mission that is set before us. But it is a battle because we will have enemies around us that are trying to reject or suppress the truth. We will face those who do not believe. We will face those who doubt. We might face those struggles even within ourselves at times. But we have the confidence and assurance that's given to us in the word. That is why when we face those times, we go to the word. We go to the Father in prayer. We go to our source of truth. Everything needs to be rooted in him. Because if it's not, then it's rooted in our own ideas, our own ideals, our own beliefs. He is the truth. And the truth is that the tomb is empty and your sin debt is paid for. It is an exciting time for us as believers because the time is getting short. We know that he is going to be coming back and that time is drawing near. We have the absolute joy and privilege to be used as vessels to carry his word forward, to advance his kingdom. So let's not miss the opportunities that are before us. Let's comprehend what God is doing and wants to do through us in order to share his grace with the world. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you in pure joy today. We come before you in humility, grabbing at your feet, astounded, excited that you are risen. Father, we praise you today for what the resurrection means in our faith, that our sins are paid for, that our relationship with you has been restored through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would not take that for granted, but we would cherish our relationship with you above all the things of this world. As Paul says, count everything else as rubbish. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart and a passion and a drive to seek your truth in life. Not the truth of scholars and intellectuals, But Lord, the, f- the beginning of wisdom and knowledge start with the fear of you. So I pray that you would bring us a little bit more fear in our lives. Lord, that as we continue to grow in our faith, that we would understand the commands that you have given and that we would willingly be used by you to advance your gospel message forward. Lord, you have given us salvation for a purpose and for a reason. On today of of all days, as people and families get together and celebrate, I pray that words from Scripture are on our lips. Amid all of the other family conversations, Lord, let our conversations go back to the truth of who you are and what you have done. It is in Jesus' name that we, that we pray. Amen.